Thank you so much, choir, for encouraging us that song. Please turn your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 4. Great to see everyone here this morning. I don't know if anyone is in our overflow room this morning, but if you are, hello. Thank you for heading over there, making more room here in this room here. We'll be in 1 Samuel chapter 4 today. I want to start out by saying, first, saying thank you to Melissa Raleigh and Jan Sanders and, and the whole team of volunteers that helped with the Parents' Night Out, a heart like his on uh, Friday night, including all the students who were there to help. So grateful for all of you. I've heard so many wonderful comments from our kids saying and parents saying what a great time they had, being encouraged in Christ. Uh, so thank you so much for putting all the effort into planning that. And those of you who helped prepare food, so grateful for that. And then I also want to say thank you to someone, and I don't know who that someone is, but I believe maybe it is a family, maybe with some kids in the family. When I had chemo on Monday, of course, and then I came into the office on Tuesday, uh, there was a gift box, a gift bag, excuse me, in my box, and it said to pastor, and it was spelled P-A-S-T-E-R, and, and it said for cancer, there was no name signed. But it looked like someone or some kids emptied their piggy bank and put it in there. And if you're in this room, I don't know who to thank you, but I want you to know that was very uh, special. I'm grateful for it. First Samuel chapter 4. My guess is that we all know people who talk a lot of spiritual talk, but yet live their lives devoid of true godliness. Social media oftentimes highlights these dichotomies. I know of people who regularly post things about God's grace and God's love and his presence and his power, but then a few posts later, the post highlights obscene language or vulgar content. About a year ago, I was having a conversation with someone who was on the same page as me politically, but very different place spiritually. Interestingly enough, though, this person kept talking about how he is a God-fearing American and how all these people that he knows are just God-fearing Americans, but based on this person's life and based on the things that they are engaging in, I would say that we have a very different understanding of what it means to be a God-fearing person. In our world, there is a strong effort to domesticate God to reduce God to something that we can control. Just consider Christmas. My family will laugh at this because it's a pet peeve of mine. But just think about this. Christmas is a beloved holiday, but culturally speaking, the holiday holds a ton of sway, doesn't it? Lots of money is made by lots of different people at Christmas time. Think of all the entertainers who would never claim to be Christians who would never claim to fear God, who make a lot of money selling albums with a bunch of Christmas songs on them. Even Christian Christmas songs on them. It's been proven in our world, and I understand that we are moving further and further away from any kind of Judeo-Christian heritage. I understand that. But it has been proven in our culture that our world will take advantage of Jesus' name in order to profit in order to make a buck. But the greater danger, friends, is that when Christians do this, 
The greater danger is when Christians fall into the same pattern or go down that dead-end path of seeking to manipulate God for our own earthly gain or our own earthly goals. As we look to chapter four this morning, we see there's a transition away from the person of Samuel. In fact, over the course of the next several chapters, we're gonna be moving away from Samuel. He takes a step into the background and it's the ark of God that comes into uh, the forefront. We're gonna see how the ark of God, uh, how things are revolving around that as God is bringing his judgment upon the house of Eli. And as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper here today, we're gonna see that we need to pass on using God that we need to prioritize repentance and relationship with God and that God's glory is to be prized above everything else. So would you stand with me as we read in 1 Samuel in chapter four. 1 Samuel chapter four. We'll begin by reading the first 11 verses. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. And the Philistines drew up in line against Israel, and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And when the people came to camp, the elders said, why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies." So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the ark of the covenant of God. As soon as the ark of the covenant of the Lord came into camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout, so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, what does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid, for they said, a God has come into the camp. And they said, woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us, who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight." So the Philistines fought and Israel was defeated and they fled every man to his house. And there was a great slaughter for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell and the ark was captured and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas died. Will you pray with me? Lord, thank you for your word. And today it's our desire to be humble before it. And to learn to be transformed by the power of your spirit as we give attention to it. God, help us even this day to prize your glory above everything else in life. Help us to seek you with all that we are to be devoted to the true king, to King Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. And you may be seated. Well, chapter four and verse one tells us that God was with Samuel, that he was speaking, that that the word of Samuel came to all Israel. We understand this because God's hand was on this man, Samuel. 
Yet we know that his influence was still at some level limited because Eli and Hophni and Phinehas were still running the show there at Shiloh. And this was an issue, right? This is where the tabernacle of God was. This is where the, the Holy of Holies was. But Eli and his sons were not leading in a good way. They were corrupt and they were corrupting the people. Some scholars believe that nearly 20 years have passed before the end of what we saw last week when God was calling to Samuel and to what takes place today. Now we know that the Philistines were a thorn in the flesh of the Israelites. During the time of the judges, God raised up the Philistines to punish the Israelites. The Philistines had a five city-state location, right? They were on the western uh, plain area there right along the Mediterranean Sea. You might recognize some of these names that were these main cities of the Philistine people, Ekron and Ashdod and Gath and Ashkelon and Gaza. These were where they resided. Not much info is here given about what prompted the skirmish between the Philistines and the Israelites. It seems kind of random, doesn't it? We enter in verse four and now we see that they're about to go to battle. They're about to go to war. We don't know exactly why, but based on the locations of Ebenezer and Aphek, it seems that the Philistines were trying to get more territory from the Israelites. They were advancing. They were only 20 or so miles away from Shiloh at this point where the tabernacle was set up, right? And so maybe they were trying to advance into this area. And however it went down, the Philistines defeated the Israelites handedly. Now, I will note this, linguists aren't sure about the number 4,000 here or about the number 30,000 in verse 10. Scholars note that the term could point to an unspecified number of military units or it could refer to actual Israelite soldiers. But either way, it wasn't good for the Israelites. Things happened and they didn't happen good for the Israelites. And the next move makes it clear that we must first pass on using God. <coughs> we have to pass on using God. Notice in verse three there, the elders ask this important question, why? Not just why did we lose, why were we defeated? They ask, why did the Lord defeat us today before the Philistines? Now this tells us, them asking this question tells us at least to some degree that their defeat wasn't just due to the power of the Philistines. No, it was because of the hand of the Lord, the will of God. In their minds, defeat could mean two things. It could mean that the gods of the Philistines were more powerful than the God of Israel or that the God of Israel had at some level abandoned his people and neither of those scenarios would be good scenarios, would they? So they were wondering, why did this happen? Well, when asking that question, they had nearly 200 years of history during the time of the judges to help them come up with an answer, didn't they? They could have known because the pattern repeated itself over and over again. The people would disregard God's ways and they would do what was right in their own eyes. And then God would send oppressors over them to punish them and get their attention. Eventually the people would feel the heat. It would get bad enough. They would repent. They would cry out to God. And then God would raise up a deliverer or a rescuer to come and save 
his people. The elders could have put two and two together. They could have. They could have come up with a pretty strong reason why God had allowed them to be defeated there at Aphek, at Ebenezer. Instead, they leaned on their own wisdom, didn't they? And they decided that they knew the right thing to do. Let's go get the ark of God. Let's go get the ark of the covenant of God. If we just get the ark of the covenant of God, if we just bring it to battle, then the enemies will stand no chance. Now, it's true that there are examples in the past of Israel's history where God commanded that the ark would go into battle. This was happening at Jericho, we even see. The Ark of the Covenant was a box where the tablets of the Ten Commandments were stored that, that God gave to Moses at Mount Sinai. It was the Ark symbolizing the presence and the power of God. It was where the mercy seat was residing. It was the Ark by God's design was to be kept in the Holy of Holies. And according to Deuteronomy 12, it was only to go out when the Lord God commanded that it would go out. But the Israelites had other plans. They were certain, friends, they were certain that if they brought the ark to battle, then God would fight for them, that everything would go okay. The ark was the secret weapon, so go get the ark. Go get the ark. It's the secret weapon. Now pull back the curtain a little bit, and this is nothing more (coughs) than an attempt to manipulate God. Nothing more than an attempt to manipulate God an attempt to cajole God into action, to use God for their own purposes. Some think that they were trying to make God defend his honor by bringing the ark. Others think that they believe that the ark would remind God of the covenant, and so then God would fight for them. (coughs) But what's clear is that it never dawned on those leaders to actually seek the Lord. They just wanted to control God. They thought of God like a server or a waiter at a restaurant. You know, your family goes to a restaurant, maybe you have a big group of friends there and, and you're there and you're just kind of keeping yourself and you're talking and the, the, the waiter or the server will come and he'll or she'll take your order and then go away and you don't really want the waiter or the server hanging out there with you, do you? But when you need him or her, what do you do? You raise your hand and you get the attention of that person, and then that person will come over and serve your needs. And that's exactly what's happening here when we look at the account here. They were defeated. So they're gonna go, and they're gonna call on God. Okay, God, we need you now. Let's go get the ark. Let's bring it to battle, and let's get this thing taken care of. Friends, some people, even Christians, can fall into the trap of seeing God that way of using God for our own purposes, trying to use God for our own purposes or our own desires or our own wants or our own timetable. Stay out of the way, God, until I need you, until I call out for you, and then attend to my every need. That's what's going on here. Consider the topic of prayer. Just a few weeks ago, there was an emergency situation with a Buffalo Bills player, Damar Hamlin. Everyone prayed. Everyone. Everyone called out to God. 
But friends, I wonder how many of those who prayed did so from an established relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ. Or was it just trying to conjole God into action? Was it just trying to get his attention so that he would help in that moment? It's easy to fall into the trap of using God. And friends, it's easier than we think it is. Just consider the topics of health or grades or finances or politics and our prayer life that surrounds them because we need something, so we seek him. (coughs) Again, it's not wrong to pray about such things. It is good to pray about such things, especially from hearts that are devoted to King Jesus, especially from hearts that flow for love for God. But there can be a line that we cross where it becomes that we're just seeking to use God. Well, verse four kind of gives us a clear clue about how this attempt is gonna go. Why? Because we read that the two wicked sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, are there attending to the Ark of the Covenant. They're the ones who are gonna bring this Ark. These wicked people are gonna bring this Ark in to battle. (coughs) And things didn't go well. In verses five through nine, We read that Israel was having a rousing pep rally. The Philistines were actually taking God seriously. And while they didn't understand all the theology of what they were saying, they did understand God's power. And faced with that, the Philistines seemed to have a little pep rally of themselves. The Israelites were overconfident. Oh, we got this. We got the ark here. Everything is going to be just fine now. The Philistines were remembering how powerful God is and saying, look, unless you want to become slaves, you better man up and you better fight. You better do something here. So they motivated themselves and then they fought and what happened is that they won. They routed Israel. They captured the Ark of the Covenant. They killed the two worthless sons of Eli. Friends, pass on using God. It is a dead end. It doesn't work. Humble yourself. And secondly, we see that we need to prioritize repentance and relationship. We need to prioritize repentance and relationship. From our perspective, it's not too difficult to see why things went down the way they went down, is it? No, we can understand. From an old covenant perspective, God had clearly warned the people that when they rebelled against him, when they didn't fear him, there would be consequences, that God would get their attention. One of the main problems with Israel was that they were forsaking the very God who had graciously covenanted with them who had began relationship with them, had called themselves, (coughs) the Israelites, to relationship. They disregarded and even disdained the relationship with God. They were prioritizing their own desires, their own needs. And this was a problem both with the leadership of Israel and the populace of Israel, as we've seen in the weeks past. Everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. And no one seemed to care about the relationship, about the covenant with God. That is, until they believed that the covenant would bolster their own agendas. That was the problem here. They were using God. Instead, they needed to prioritize repentance and relationship. Why was this so hard for them to see? Why was it so difficult to see, for them to see that they needed to prioritize repentance and relationship? Why was it so hard for them to see that they have drifted from gratitude for and faithfulness to the God who had called them and saved them? And let me be very clear. 
Israel didn't need a formula. They didn't need a technique. They didn't need something else to do. It was about them jumping through certain, it wasn't about them jumping through certain hoops or offering certain sacrifices. No, what Israel needed was humility, contrition, and brokenness before God because of their sin, because of their rebellion. And the problem with that is that we can't manufacture true repentance. We can't just conjure it up in our own lives, right? We are either broken over our sin or we're not. We're either sorry for our rebellion or we're sorry for the consequences of our rebellion or we're not sorry at all. The hearts of the people of Israel were so far from God that repentance, that brokenness and humility weren't even on the radar. Weren't even on the radar. They may have found it easier to fall back to religious artifacts. Hey, go get the ark of God. Let's bring it here and let's go to battle. But what they needed was to focus on their relationship with the one true and living God. And here's the truth. Without repentance, we can't focus on relationship with God. Without repentance, we can't focus on relationship with God. Now, we're not under the old covenant like the Israelites during the days of Samuel. We don't operate with the same expectations of God's blessing or God's curses based on how we perform before God. As those who are in Christ, (coughs) we are under the new covenant of grace. God deals graciously with us based on the finished work of Jesus Christ in his faithfulness to the law. Yet, hear this. Prioritizing repentance and relationship remain important. Consider that our salvation is not some transaction that just happens out there somewhere. It's not you just take a little bit of that and take a little bit of this and then add the blood of Christ and everything's fine. That's not what it is. No, in the New Testament, salvation is based on our union with Christ, with Jesus. It's based on our faith relationship with Jesus. There is never relationship with God apart from a faith relationship with Jesus. So we prioritize repentance and we prioritize relationship. It's never disconnected. Our salvation is never disconnected from Jesus. It's never outside of the realm of a faith relationship with Jesus. When we think about living for God, When we think about humility and brokenness and repentance, we need to understand this ought to characterize us every day. Why? Because we recognize how good and gracious and holy and mighty and, and awesome he is. And then on the other hand, we recognize how far we fall short of what he demands and what he expects and what he calls us to. So we live with this persistent recognition of God's grace in our lives, but also this persistent understanding of God's need, of our need for God's grace, excuse me, of our need because of how far we fall short. But when we focus our hearts on living for him, on being devoted to the true king and living for his glory, then we are battling any notion or any temptation to use God for our own agendas and purposes. Why? Because we recognize that we can't. And we recognize that we desperately need him. When we're motivated to live for him because of who he is and what he's done, we'll find that our hearts 
find more satisfaction in his ways and walking with his spirit than in going our own ways or doing what is right in our own eyes. Well, finally, what we see from this passage that we need to prioritize God's glory above all else. Let's look at these last verses, verses 12 through 22. A man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day with his clothes torn and with dirt on his head. When he arrived, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road watching for his heart trembled for the ark of God. When the man came into the city and told the news, all the city cried out. When Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, what is this uproar? When the man hurried and came and told Eli, then the man hurried and came and told Eli. Now Eli was 98 years old and his eyes were set so that he could not see. And the man said to Eli, I am he who has come from the battle. I fled from the battle today. And he said, how did it go, my son? He who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines and there has also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons, also Hophni and Phinehas, are dead and the ark of God has been captured. And soon as, he, as soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate and his neck was broken and he died. For the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel for 40 years. Now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant, about to give birth. And when she had heard the news that the ark of God was captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth and her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, excuse me, about the time of her death, the women attended to her and said, do not be afraid for you have borne a son. But she did not answer or pay attention. And she named the child Ichabod saying, the glory has departed from Israel because the ark of God has been captured and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, the glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God has been captured. It's an interesting way to end the chapter, isn't it? We go from this grand picture of a battle, how Israelites are fighting against the Philistines and how the Israelites are trying to manipulate God and bring the ark to the report of the battle, right? The report of the battle, Eli will die. And then now we learn of another character, the wife of Phineas, the wife here who is going to give birth and then herself die it's an interesting end Eli learns of the fate of his sons but notice that it's the news of the ark of the covenant that really knocks him off balance Eli was expecting judgment on his house judgment from God but he was not expecting that the ark of God would be captured he was not expecting that the Philistines would steal this manifestation this image of the presence and the power and the glory of God. And the sentiment is clear even in the fate of Phineas's wife. Upon hearing the news, she went into premature labor and, and she bore a son and her last act would be naming her son Ichabod, meaning the glory has departed or where is the glory? See, in a profound way, that's what the ark of God represented. God's glory God's presence, God's power. And now it's been taken. It's been stolen. It's been captured by the enemies. 
which brings up a legitimate question, did they even understand the significance of this at the time? Did they even understand it? Did they even see it? Let's be honest, they weren't valuing God's glory anyway. They weren't pursuing God's glory. They were being driven by other glories. They were living for themselves. This was the pattern of the Israelites. Did it even matter to them, other than they lost this symbol of power, that the glory of God had departed? And friends, that's a question we need to ask ourselves as well. What glory matters in our lives? Whose glory matters in our lives? Because too many professing Christians live with the glory of something else in mind. Living for lesser glories, like money, or fame, or comfort, or reputation. But friends, in the end, none of these things can satisfy us. In the end, none of these things can save us. Let's not be tempted to think that Israel's defeat is God's defeat here. Like, we can look at this and see, oh, okay, the ark of God is captured. God has been defeated. Israel's been defeated. God's been defeated. There's no more glory here, and, and everything's falling apart. But friends, nothing is falling apart according to God's plan. God has not been defeated. And God will not be defeated. Even in the ark being captured, God was accomplishing his purposes. He enacted his judgment on the house of Eli, and he was, he was bringing forth a scenario that would get the attention of his people. He, we'll see this in the coming weeks, but God's glory could not ultimately be captured or contained. And as the new covenant people of God, we need to recall that God's glory isn't contained to a box. The ultimate display of God's glory is found in the person of Jesus Christ. God became man. He took on flesh, as the apostle John writes, the fullness of God dwells in Jesus. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And just as the enemies of God thought they had secured the victory by defeating the Israelites on the battlefield, and then by stealing the ark, by capturing the ark, The enemies of God thought they had secured the victory when they hung Jesus up on the cross. But God was working behind the scenes, accomplishing his purposes through the redemption that comes through faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, right? On the third day, Jesus rose in victory over sin and death. His glory could not be contained. God doesn't lose. Death has died, love has won, sing hallelujah. Today we, know, we have no fear of God's glory being diminished, no fear of God's glory being captured, for Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sin, he sat down at the right hand of Majesty on high, and friends, he remains there today, Amen. alive. Amen. 
the risen Savior, and he intercedes for his own, and he promises that he'll never leave us nor forsake us, and that he will save us to the uttermost. And even more than that, the promise of Jesus is that he invites us into the sphere of his glory. Listen to what we read in John chapter 17, verse 22. Jesus saying to the Father that the glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one. And as Paul writes, that as through faith we are children of, of God, we are heirs of God and fellow heirs of Christ, that we have been glorified with him, Romans chapter 8. Church, when we prize God's glory above all else, our lives are in order. We are following rightly the true king. And we have every hope of experiencing the greatest joys known. The fullness of joy in the glory of God. Will you pray with me? Or why you choose weak and unworthy vessels, men and women, and boys and girls, to become your own to be your children, to redeem us from the curse of the law and to give us a righteousness that is not our own and on the basis of your giving that righteousness to save us, we don't know. But we're grateful. We're grateful because you're good. We're grateful because you love us. And we're grateful because Christ has overcome Thank you, Lord, for the mercy tree. We worship you. We humble ourselves. Break us. Make us contrite. Our desire is to focus on repentance and relationship. You're worthy of that, and it's our greatest need. In Jesus' name, amen. Church, as we prepare our hearts to celebrate the Lord's Supper, would you consider the lyrics as you stand and as you sing this song, Mercy Tree.